Shalom and welcome to Product Nation, a weekly podcast by product managers in Silicon Valley covering how tech products get created and executed by some of the most accomplished product experts in the world. I'm Ophel Barav, and today with me and my co-host Neil Paz, welcome Elad Shani. How did you like the last four days of pure air that we suddenly got because the winds blew in the right direction? Yeah, wow, it felt like eternity. It was amazing. I went up for a run. Air is it, under, underestimated. It's, it's amazing. We went for a hike here above Portola Valley, up a mountain, and wow, just feeling the wind and seeing life, like trees and sun hitting you. And I was like, wow, I forgot how good this is. I think we were locked here for like six weeks before that. And lucky for us, it all blew elsewhere. Sorry, Elad, because you're based in Seattle. What's, yeah. what's it been like for you? Yeah, so everything that cleared up for you guys basically blew up in my face. Up until last night, I've been at home for the last 10 days covering doors with towels. I think last night it cleared up a little bit simply because we finally got rain, right? So Seattle has rain the entire year, but when you really need it, it's not, so. So uh, tell us something fun, some series that you've watched. So the last one I completed was The Last Dance, The, the Bulls and, and Michael Jordan documentary, which I love. I'm, I'm a big basketball fan, so that was amazing for me. I think what, what's cool about this one is there's a big debate, right? Who's the greatest of all time, LeBron James or, or Michael Jordan? And I think it brought up this conversation again and like shut it down and basically let all the youngsters know that MJ was something else. Where can people watch this? I watched it on ESPN, but it's now on Netflix. By the way, I'm a big VR fan and I got into the Amazon Prime VR application. It's outstanding for anybody that wants to see things uh, sitting on a drive-in sized theater. It's the way to go. I don't know how my brain is wired, but it's incredibly difficult for me to experience VR. I get headaches. I've, I've tried different, different platforms. I've tried different hardware. I don't know what. There's something with VR that just doesn't jive well with me. How long ago did you last try? So I've been using betas because I worked at Amazon devices and I've been using different beta devices. So last time I tried it, I think was uh, six months ago. Beta uh, devices. These are, this is the key <laughs> word, beta yeah, devices. Yeah. We'll talk uh, offline afterwards about some of these amazing latest and greatest devices such as Valve Index, for example, which I doubt highly would leave you. I mean, again, depends on what application. All you need to do is make sure you've got enough GPU to run up at the, let's say, 140 frames per second, and then you're, you'll probably be happy. Elad, so tell us a little bit about you. Who do you work for and what do you do? I studied mechanical engineering in Tel Aviv University, and I first worked for an American semiconductor company, actually. So my role was highly technical on the engineering side, working with uh, mechanics and optics and stuff like that. As far as the day-to-day, -day, I worked with our customers engineer, mainly on training and implementation for our hardware products. And I did the pivot to product management when I moved to the US to get an MBA. And my first product management role was with Amazon as an MBA intern, which is pretty much a three months job interview. Once I graduated, I started with Amazon full-time. I joined the Amazon devices business where I was a PM for Kindle e-readers. So not the content side, but the actual hardware. And about six months ago, I made an internal transfer and I moved to Amazon's last mile tech arm, where essentially we handle the last part of the delivery of the package to the customer. By the way, and I'm seeing here, let's give a big high five to Duke University School of Business. So when you did an internship, that was while you were... Correct. Basically between first and second year at Duke, I interned with Amazon. Walk us through a little bit of the experiences leading to the position you currently have. I joined Amazon Music for my internship and I got 
a question. Well, how do we, how can we take the metadata of a track or a song that customers are actually listening to and use it to predict their behavior for a specific action that we were looking to get insight on? And that's it. If that's a question, go figure it out. So basically it's up to you to work as an IC individual contributor to then find the right stakeholders internally to drive this solution. And ultimately by the end of the three months, come up with a written down solution. It could either be a product, a strategy, whatever you need, right? To inform leadership about the solution. And the reason this is interesting is because usually these internships are given to capable people, but internally the team might not have the bandwidth to focus for three months on this core question. So it's one way of having a person become a subject matter expert on an important product solution that you probably wouldn't otherwise be able to get with an internal employee. So then game time, you get hired into full-time. What were some of the initial experiences and a little bit more about your current? So my knack in general for product management, if I think about where I want to go next or what I have to work on, I love hardware products or software products that are in the hands of users. So apps and stuff like that. And if we have a chance to combine the two, even more amazing. So I requested to join the Amazon devices business, but I did not know I would actually work for Kindle. So I knew I would work on devices, but in my mind it was, I'm going to work in Alexa on Echo devices because that's what I asked. And he said, yes, but then they gave me Kindle. And I took a step back and was like, I don't really read too many books. It's probably not for me. It's up to the PM to immerse themselves with the context of what they're working on. And if they can't, I think they're going to have a problem. So I forced myself to start reading books on Kindle. And I think that's crucial. We can talk a little bit about that, but I think there yep. is some importance on the PM's affinity to the business he's actually working on. So there's that. Yeah, definitely. Please tell us a little bit more about that. And especially, I, th I think you have something to share that I'm going to let you tell us about that experience within Kindle. Yeah. So I, I do think that if all the PMs talk about this empathy for customers and working backwards from the customer, and I think it's incredibly difficult to do when you cannot sustain that behavior for a long time. I look at myself and I thought I have zero affinity to cloud. I have zero affinity to AWS. AWS might seem the logical progression for me as my next step because it's booming at Amazon. This is where the future is. But really, can I contribute to the company? Can I add value for something I care nothing about? I think the answer is no. And so it's interesting at large companies, and this is a little bit of kind of negative feedback I have for corporations that have a lot of internals kind of rotating roles. I think there isn't so much emphasis on that. How much does my PM actually immerse themselves with the product? How much background do they have about the product or the customers? Because this takes a long time to actually become familiar with your customers. I've seen scenarios when I worked on the music business, most of the folks there were musicians, or if not, they just love music, right? And I look back at that team, they're all still there. So to me, there's a ton of value for the company to make sure that the right people are in the right businesses because this takes care of employee churn and whatnot. So I don't think large corporations put a strong emphasis on that when it's so easy to rotate and turn. What's an example of a place where you were put on the spot in your career and how did you emerge from that, I guess? Yeah, just as kind of as a background, Amazon has, and a lot of PMs know this, have these leadership principles, right, where you need to kind of follow certain approaches to your day-to-day, -day, if it's product development or if it's customer service or if it's whatnot. And employees are expected to operate within those boundaries because it's 
fairly easy for stakeholders to understand your approach when you kind of operate within these boundaries. I have a pretty cool example on Kindle where a decision had to be made by me incredibly fast, but it brought up a ton of risk where if I get this wrong, I'm very wrong, where not only is there an impact on my own personal work, but there is a ton of impact on customers because we have so many customers. So Kindle has this feature where customers that complete a book are presented with what we call the next best read, which essentially is an algorithm that takes the likelihood of a customer to actually purchase or start reading uh, a random book. And Kindle presents that book for that specific customer. It's customized. I have this thing where I actually go on Reddit at the end of the day and kind of see what customers are saying uh, about the product. And I noticed the customer um, taking a screenshot of their e-reader and essentially saying, hey, look at what Amazon is recommending me to read. And we won't go into which book it was, but it was a book that as a company, you definitely do not want to recommend any customer, right? But it did pass by all of our filters. And I don't think this is necessarily relevant to being a PM or not. It's just an owner of a work stream. You had to make a decision right there and then to kill the service. You don't want this to happen for other customers. You want to shut it down fast so you can go back to the drawing board and understand what what is how can we solve this? How, how did this happen? So tactically, I wrote an email to Kindle VP and, and obviously CC'd everyone underneath. And this is not someone who a normal PM would probably reach out to for a technical issue. But the risk of not doing anything in the next five minutes was great because then you have some PR implications and then you have all these different risks that are surfaced. And so I think that's the ownership mentality that kind of Amazon looks for as part of their leadership principles. You got to be able to make those calls. A quick question about that. I mean, wouldn't it be easier to maybe exclude a list of books instead of killing a service? A hundred percent. That's if you know the root cause. And if you don't know the root cause, it's a track, if it's a book, if it's a product. And on the surface, the attributes tell you that it should have been blocked. But it, something happened on the back end where this specific file did not get blocked, then you don't know why, right? So the only way you can stop it right there on the spot is to take a, a significant measure, which is to kill a service. When you kill a service, what's the downside of killing a service? Well, it depends for how long you kill it. If you kill it for two weeks, then there's a big issue. But if you kill it for two hours, and during those two hours, you found out what the root analysis is, there's a good chance that none of the customers will actually note it. And so I think it's good to pretty severe action if it allows you to step back for a second and have a clear head on, okay, what's next? But for sure, not taking any action has consequences right there. And so that was just the, the solution I had in mind. Elad, let's hop into current day. Yeah. What are you building? All right. So this is actually extremely relevant because finally, after many, many weeks of sleepless nights, two days ago, I launched my latest product. Congrats. And so right now I'm working on Amazon's new type of lockers. So traditionally, Amazon has parcel lockers. So a customer orders instead of home delivery, they order a package to a locker nearby. They get a code, they punch it in, retrieve their package. These present uh, a challenge where you want these things to be much more nimble, much more cost-effective and have more capabilities. So we are now launching uh, Bluetooth enabled lockers. These are lockers that are battery powered, have no screens, no numpads, and 
customer interaction is solely done through their phone. And so drivers delivering packages and customers picking up packages are essentially interacting with an app within an app. And, and basically we facilitate that delivery that's uh, away from your home. How did this product come to be? Are you part of the from zero to one sort of, or, so or did I, you jump into something that was already underway? I joined in into something that was underway. So the hardware was already built and the concept was already built. But my role within this workstream was to lead the end-to-end -end customer experience for Amazon customers. So essentially what this means is this is building an app on the main Amazon shopping app and defining with my tech team and with mainly UX UI designers, how the customer experience would look like, not just on the app itself, but also physically on the street as they approach the locker to pick up. As an example to kind of highlight some of the decisions that we had to take when I joined is how will a blind customer use this locker? How is a blind customer different from a non-blind customer when they are picking up a package? So these are decisions that are away from the app itself, right? So we have a pretty cool feature, for example, where the screen reader on the app actually prompts a blind customer to initiate some vibration on the locker, and they're able using their hands to kind of feel where their package is ahead of it, ahead of this being opened. So you're building a feature for blind people to kind of direct them to the locker. And, and that's one feature, right? So you can think about all these different features of how can a customer order a package and pick up a package? So they order in the digital world and they pick up in the physical world and you got to bridge those two. Did you have to justify, I would imagine as a segment and in the end, how do you go about prioritizing these, for example? So it's, it's a unique question because it's different than other customer segments. So we're talking about accessibility here, right? And if you look at how many accessibilities users a locker will actually have, it's very, very minimal. And so if this was not an accessibility type of feature, and if this was just a customer cohort, which may act or behave a little bit different than the average customer at Amazon, then you may make the decision to say, hey, this actually doesn't impact so many customers. And so I'm not going to build this feature. I'm going to let this customer cohort kind of just deal with the experience that I've built for the average customer. For accessibility, it's different because even if it's five customers a month, you want to enable an experience. Uh, so Amazon has this approach of if it's enabling an experience for a customer, not improving it, but simply enabling it, we will build it even for a very small use case, even if it's an edge case. And even if for the first month, we won't even have users. If you don't have users at all, I mean, how, how would you actually test and, and get the feedback that it actually works? Right. And I'll expand on that question and say, well, how do you actually test when you actually can't tell the market that you're going to launch this product? Right. So there are some. Mm -hmm. So if you want to test accessibility on a product that has kind of PR restrictions that are not lifted yet, then you can't do that as well. So very early in the process, and this is kind of the benefits of working in this in a company the size of Amazon, there are subject matter experts experts around accessibility. So these are teams that have kind of SOPs to, to build features for accessibility. As a PM, I've done training, which is dedicated to building features for the blind or building features for customers in wheelchairs, which is also something that we've built for this product. And then you basically use these subject matter experts 
in the development phase. Once they kind of lead you through the process of, okay, these are the things that you need to make sure works from a customer experience point of view, we go back to the drawing board and we design the experience itself. Then after we built it, and obviously when you build something, you got to iterate a little bit and tweak it up a little bit. So we kind of keep that subject matter expert in the loop the entire time to get ongoing feedback, but then it's time to test. And because Amazon has so many employees, in addition to customers, you are able to find the accessibility customer cohorts internally. And so you reach out to this cohort and you work with them. They have no idea what you've built, but they are blind. And so they're able to test this for you internally. So that's one part. The second thing is, okay, once we launch, how am I able to track my decisions? Was I right? Was I wrong? How are customers interacting with this feature? And that has to be predefined before you launch. So when customers start using it, data starts to flow in and you can validate some of your assumptions. So right now, even though we've launched and we haven't had these users yet, when we have the first user, we're going to be able to track and we're going to get pinged on how they've used the specific blocker. Again, to allow us to iterate extremely quickly because maybe we didn't have so much market validation before. How long have you been in the whole planning phase for this product? It just launched, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is just one case. What are the other use cases that you've built for? I would say the planning, building is something along pretty much a year and a half. Let me take you to a different example on a different product, which I'm working on right now. So you can understand the initial phase of getting through a process. So at Amazon, we have a process called OP2. OP stands for basically uh, operation process, I think, operating process. And what this means is that in defined times of the year, we carve out specific time and effort by individuals to plan out either next year, two years, three years, five years, whatever products. So right now I'm in this phase where we're thinking about what is the future of our business? This is much more an ideation phase, market validation phase, and working with stakeholders for the future. This product that I'm working on right now might never get launched. Basically, my goal as a PM at this point is to rally internal stakeholders to give me funding, to give me headcount, and to, to get behind my product because I'm also competing with other PMs on what we're gonna launch. Obviously, you can't launch everything. So this is where the cycle starts. So you start with kind of getting folks internally behind your product, getting validation with business development teams, with the tech solutions, with the sales teams, with the marketing teams, with whatever. This is very much kind of a, a PM interview kind of market sizing. And then once you validate that this is something that from an ROI perspective is something that is worth for us to build, then you move over to actually implementing and starting to acquire customers. I would say the entire process might take between from ideation phase to actually launching might take two years if it's a it's a significant new product versus just a feature. If it's just a feature, you might not have to go through all these phases. There are levels of features which the PM is the final kind of owner and the final go, no go decision maker. And those are more common to ongoing incremental improvements to products, which we work on on the day to day. If you can just define the whole thing that you made the case for, mm -hmm. what is, what is that product in its entirety? Yeah, a summary of it. And what is it about that excites you? Because I remember that you mentioned a lot about alignment. So I still didn't catch that from your background perspective on mechanical engineering. Yeah. So. This product has to be as part, it's not an out of the blue product. If I'm in the operation type of Amazon business, I'm not going to now suggest to build a, a product that 
I don't know, talks to customers, an echo device, right? So the idea is working back from goals. I work in a business called Access Points, which is essentially an alternative to home delivery. So our goal is to, how do we provide a customer experience that is better than home delivery? Right, so that that is the final goal. So that's one. The second thing is how do we cut costs for Amazon operations? So if you think about it, Amazon generates a lot of value. If as a customer, you choose to pick up your package in a centralized location versus your home. Why? Because drivers delivering those packages can consolidate their effort and deliver 50 packages and 30 minutes instead of delivering 50 packages throughout the entire day because they have to go house by house. Right, so that is kind of our end goal. So which product can we build that will enable the scale of this outcome, will generate excitement from customers, and will actually drive our business forward. And there are many different solutions to enable something like this. I would say that because my product from a technical perspective is in the ideation and market validation phase, that it is changing all the time. It's kind of like a, a startup company that pivots their product based off of what the, the feedback they're getting from the market. It's exactly the same thing. Oh, fascinating. What's in your mind now? So I actually wanted to ask something a little bit different about Amazon principles. Amazon has 10 tenants or principles and you can read about them online, but things like be bold or, or dive deep, these things are very hard to implement on your day-to-day. -day. So I'm curious actually to ask, how do you implement these things day-to-day -day without overdoing it? So for instance, dive deep, I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, I can, I can go down the rabbit hole of a problem, but when do you know that it's deep enough to get the right impact? And when do you know when to stop? It's actually pretty interesting. Yeah, I will add too that to Dive Deep is a good example because for most of the time there's a contradicting leadership principle to Dive Deep. So Dive Deep is, okay, I'm going to focus so much and get the final answer and I'm going to be right and I know for sure what I'm going to do. But the downside of that is it takes time, you said. So am I really going to validate all these assumptions and edge cases? So the flip side of that is having the launch mentality, being scrappy and launching something fast. And I think you need to do two things. One, I think and this is something I've seen with PMs at Amazon. You can define a PM based off of what they lean towards, right? So it's this PM better at diving deep and this PM is better at being frugal and being scrappy. I think it's your responsibility and your manager's responsibility or leadership responsibility is to identify who is good in which domain, right? Because you're going to do a risk assessment to your question. You're going to do a risk assessment on when is it worth to spend more time and when is it not worth to spend more time? And it's going to be up to that PM to actually call the shot on, okay, obviously if I had the majority of the time and no customers, then I'm going to spend as most time as possible to validate my assumptions. But if I don't have that and there, you're going to start to get into a place where there are diminishing returns to not doing the action that you need to do, then at that point you need to stop. And so I think it's up to you as a PM to kind of understand which domain you're better at, but then also to assess risk. Ultimately, it all comes down to risk. Maybe can you give an example from current experiences where you were in that spot and you had to make a call? Yeah. When I worked in Amazon Music, there was some decision that we had to make. And normally when there is a lot of conflict within a team to spend more time or to not spend more time and just launch something, I think a lot of times PM are very driven to just do, just launch. 
where leadership are much more taking the approach of, well, we might want to take a step back and, and not do it because the risk is too high. So their risk assessment is probably at a higher magnitude. And so one example I had where I had to validate some customer interaction with Alexa when customers are listening to music. And I just did not have the time to get my point across via diving deep into the data. It could take a month. You got to build the queries. You got to understand what you want to validate. And you just don't have that time. But one scrappy way you could actually bring to the table the point of view of the customer is do some very short usability test or do some very short customer surveys or whatever. Now, the cool thing about these things is once you take a decision to do a usability test, you don't really need a ton of users to bring to the table in front of leadership why you should do something. A lot of times user stories, even if they're just 10 users, can shut down an entire leadership assumption. Because if you're gonna bring to the table a video recording of 10 customers using a feature and none of them understand at all what we're about to launch and they're not behaving with the assumptions that we've had, then I guarantee that people are gonna take the more kind of conservative approach. And it could work on the opposite end too. If 10 out of 10 of those customers actually behave exactly like the PM is predicting that they're behaving and it seems there really isn't any risk and why not do it, right? You can launch something quicker. So I think there are a lot of kind of tactics or tools to manage this large scale work at a big company like Amazon, where you can get your point across, but usually it involves bringing some sort of data to the table. What I'm saying is that there are ways of collecting that data in a more scrappy way. If you weren't with Amazon, let's say you can build anything that you want, what would you build? actually, if you had the chance? Yeah, I think at high level, I would want to build something which is a continuation to where my career is currently at, which is a combination of something that is digital and, and physical, right? So I'm really big in unlocking value for physical commerce, which might sound contradicting working at Amazon, but I'm big on that. I do see Right. Most of commerce anyway is, is still is still physical. And now with COVID, definitely a shift where there's consolidation to big players versus small players. So how do I build something that empowers the small players, that mom and pop shop or that service provider? I've been thinking about the solution that essentially bridges the gap between customers consuming some sort of service and the service provider where the service provider is able to utilize the majority of their time, for example, dealing with cancellations and stuff like that, fill in those empty spots in their service while bridging it with the customer who has low willingness to pay. For. So a fun anecdote, in February, I, I went to my barber and they offered me in order to reduce costs to buy a subscription to get my hair cut. And so I did. So I paid $200 to get a subscription for that year and they went bankrupt the next month simply because barbershops got hit during COVID, right? And so if there was a way for these folks to operate where instead of me filling that spot, they would be able to reach out to certain consumers that have low willingness to pay without having to post the actual price that they're going to provide to everyone else. And they're just doing it to simplify the entire process. I think we have something here that would be an interesting thing to build. What, what do you do with barbers post-corona? What are some alternatives of ways to sort of save such an industry that has completely 
caved in due to Corona. I think it's, it's an issue of, okay, can a barber now kind of start approaching customers in their own home, for example, right? I think you can do that with medical care as well. Like doctors are now coming to folks' home to, to minimize the risk. So if I was a barber, I would look at innovative ways to continue providing the service, but maybe in a different setting. But then also, okay, how do I actually optimize my time? How do I make sure that I don't wait for a whole day for customers to come to me? How do I build some technical solution that facilitates that for barbers and customers? And of course, a barber is just one example, but it could be for any service provider. I want to mow my customer's lawn, but then they they told me they're afraid because of COVID, so I'm not going to have any work today. So how do I then find a new customer off some sort of app and I'm willing to provide the service for cheaper? That I think should be the mentality of a service provider in this day of age. Because you have a relationship, right? This is why you bought that recurring haircut. You love <laughs> that barber, right? No doubt. And you have a relationship with this person and maybe post-corona, even before you dare opening your house to let a stranger in, even if they're certified or whatever, is ways to now cut your hair by yourself. I don't know, with the right equipment that they would recommend for you to buy at Amazon or wherever. And and then maybe I'll do a, a FaceTime and they can show you how to adjust things. I'm sort of bold. So I've got a thing where I just kind of cut it short. It's out of need. But, but somebody like you, that would be really difficult. How do you overcome that? I think it's really easy to have a product mentality, especially for product managers. How do I build something that makes us something self-service? How do I build a product that enables me to do something that otherwise I wouldn't have gotten from a service provider? So there's that, but then there's also reality, right? I did try to cut my hair during COVID, did not go well. I find it hard to believe that we'll get to a point where cutting hair is done entirely on your own, not because it can't be done, but because there is a ton of value of not doing it on your own. Going to a barber on one hand is also a time to disconnect. I mean, it's a very high contact sport, right? Yeah. A lot of people I think are not, haven't eased and I don't know, maybe you live in a part of the country where there's a lot more cases of COVID, but for example, here in California, I don't know who still goes to see a barber or a hairdresser because there's too much risk involved. And so the question is, what happens to those businesses other than them going bankrupt? What are some alternatives? One way to think about it is, of course, e-commerce. I think you, you are going down a really interesting area, which is how do you empower the, the mom and pop? For example, I'm thinking about my barber. If my barber came out and said, hey, buy the following subscription for products, doubt highly that I would go for it, mm -hmm. uh, honestly. You know, I would probably find something for a better bang for the buck on Amazon. But what I'm saying is, you know, maybe there's other ways to think about these things of optimizing, I, I was thinking about people that do have a hefty amount of hair. Mm -hmm. How do you do it? Like you said, it didn't go well, but do you stop right there or is there something else that you could have done? My experience was a little bit different than a lot's. I tried to cut my hair and it worked great. Actually, I'm much happier with my yeah. haircut right now. The first haircut took me about two hours and three mirrors. And then I upgraded myself and I got basically the highest end equipment that you can get. Scissors, shears, yeah. everything. And now it takes me less than an hour, which is about the same time of a haircut. And I get better results. I am not going to go to a barber again. I'm definitely in nearest camp post-corona. I'm not bringing anybody in. Absolutely. But I've been assigned 
trained to cut my spouse's hair and I've got a Corona beard. My anecdote here is early on, I got into Amazon. I found the right tool that had the best ratings. I bought it. It basically helps me to shave my head. But for the beard, I don't have anything right now that is uh, great. And what I would love is to be able to have somebody on FaceTime sell me the right stuff for trimming my beard and jump in once every week or two just to help me sort of say, hey, over there, cut a few millimeters, somebody to guide me, right? And yeah, it's probably top heavy, so I'd probably use it up front. But I think that right there would have helped prevent a bankruptcy and the diminishing of profession, just the changing laterally of a profession to be more guidance. And I certainly believe that it's a huge industry that probably got battered. And a lot of these people are going to have to reimagine their careers, for sure. But I think that those that will have survived are people that found ways to find subscriptions, to find ways for e-commerce that they probably didn't have to think about, for finding ways for transferring their service to online, to using online techniques like Zoom and FaceTime. Anyway, I, I think you picked on a very interesting subject that there's a lot of innovation to bring to it. Well, we're over our time, but thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Elad. Sure. Thank you, Neil. Sure. Have a sweet uh, year. Party and, like it's uh, uh, 5,781. So question, is it 5,781 up to here or 5,781? We just started. We, we just started. started. We yeah. just started. Awesome. I've heard the thing to say now is not have a happy new year, but basically just have a normal year next year. If you think about it, in Hebrew, you say Shana Tova, which translates directly to good year. So it's not happy, not amazing, not wonderful. You should have a good year and that should be enough. Yeah, it's very yeah. Jewish. Yeah, good would definitely satisfy me at this point. I've been working remotely for too long and stuck in this home for way too long and actually not visiting Israel for way too long. So yeah. Well, thank you so much. We'll wrap it up and have a great day. 